First Corinthians 7 is where we'll be as we finish out this chapter this morning. And I'm going to begin reading to you in verse 32. First Corinthians 7 and verse 32. These are the words of God. But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age and need so require, let him do what he will, he sinneth not, let them marry. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, doeth well. So then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will only in the Lord. But she is happier if she so abide after my judgment, and I think also that I have the Spirit of God. It's important for me to note, for, especially for our visitors, that we are engaged in a verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians. This is our 35th week in 1 Corinthians. We began over a year ago in chapter 1, verse 1. And yes, we've taken some breaks along the way, uh, but we have endeavored to preach through this book, line by line, verse by verse. I say that because we come to a passage now that no preacher, if he were not bound to ex- exposition, <laughs> would ordinarily choose to be his subject on a Sunday morning. I have never, outside of a series, thought, you know, I think I'm going to preach on Paul's considerations to virgins in their singleness this Sunday. That'll be a great blessing to everyone, won't it? Uh, But yet it will be a great blessing because it's part of God's Word. It is just as much inspired as every other portion of God's Word. And as we come now to the close of chapter 7... We finish with part two of considerations in singleness. We looked at the first three considerations last week, and we will examine the final three considerations this week. But before we do that, let me once again frame the context of this chapter for you. Chapter seven is a practical and topical treatment of various issues related to marriage. And it is based on Paul's private correspondence with the Corinthians. Throughout this chapter, Paul has been driving home one overarching theme, that is this, wherever you are at in your life, maximize your service to Christ to the fullest. Whether you are married to a believer, married to an unbeliever, whether you are a widow or a widower, whether you are a virgin who's never been married, you are to serve the Lord right where you are. So in the concluding section of chapter 7, from verses 25 through verse 40, having spoken to all of the other groups, Paul now addresses singles who have never before been married. And he gives six considerations 
for singles in their singleness. His goal is not to prove that singleness is morally or spiritually superior to marriage. Rather, his goal is to give single Christians advice, counsel, and encouragement to serve God in their singleness. If you're a single Christian, this is what God is saying to you in this passage. Number one, your singleness is a good gift from God. We must begin there. Your singleness is not a curse. It is a good gift from God. Number two, far from being a hindrance, your singleness actually has unique advantages for serving the Lord that married people do not have. There are ways that you can serve the Lord single that would be very difficult for you to do married. Now, why would God have to tell you this? Because we live in an insecure culture that tells you that you aren't complete if you don't have a mate. We live in a culture that tells you if you're single, then you must be lonely and you must be depressed, you must be sad, you must be unfulfilled. And you need to get on a dating site and you need to go on singles cruises and you need to go to singles conventions desperately searching for a spouse because your life is incomplete until you're married. We live in a culture that tells you that. Ironically, we also live in a culture that tells you you can have all the privileges of marriage without actually being married, but I digress. The Word of God says something entirely different to you. The Word of God tells you that you don't find your completion or your satisfaction in a spouse. You find it in Christ alone. That is where you find your completion. That is where you find your satisfaction. And if you are a recipient of the love of Christ then you will be able to have contentment in singleness and marriage and even in widowhood. That's what chapter 7 has been all about thus far. What really matters is do you know Christ? Do you love Christ? And are you living for Christ? A single person who wholeheartedly serves the Lord with everything in them is more spiritual than a married Christian who only gives the Lord what's left. And a married Christian who serves the Lord despite the busyness in his life from his wife, his children, his job, and all of the responsibilities that he has is more spiritual than a single Christian who foolishly squanders the advantages of singleness. Some of you singles would do well to learn how married Christians serve the Lord. I'm thankful that we have some godly married couples in this church that don't use their marriage as an excuse for not serving the Lord. In fact, a lot of times it's the married Christians who are some of the first to volunteer and to step up to the plate and to jump into the fray whenever there is service to be done. Because if you're too busy to serve the Lord, then you're just too busy. And if you're too busy to serve the Lord, but you're not too busy to do the things for your own pleasure, then you're lying to yourself. Now for some of you, your period of singleness will be very short compared to your period of married life. Your singleness is a time of great preparation. And Paul would urge you to start being the kind of man that will make a godly husband now. Start being the kind of lady that will make a godly wife now. Don't waste your singleness by being childish and irresponsible. But seek the Lord and desire of Him 
to make you a mature and godly man and woman, even in your singleness. But not everyone's period of singleness is a time of preparation for marriage. Though few are so called, there are those for whom the will of God is to remain single the entirety of their life. Jesus said in Matthew 19 and verse 12, For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. And we know that this is a difficult truth because Jesus then says, He who is able to accept him, let him accept it. All this to say that God does not view those who serve him in singleness lesser than those who serve him in marriage. If you're single, you're not a junior varsity Christian that will graduate into real Christianity when you get married. We've already seen three considerations for singleness from verses 25 through verse 31. We saw that you need to consider your singleness in light of the present distress. The light of the, the present distresses in this world that you face should be things that you consider before entering into marriage. You also need to consider your singleness in light of the pressing troubles that you would have in marriage. Anytime you put two sinners under the same roof, there are going to be difficulties that you're going to have to overcome. And you need to consider your singleness in light of the passing opportunities as the time is short and as we live in a world that is ultimately passing away. C.T. Studd once said, Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. If you want to spend your singleness chasing money, chasing earthly treasure, well, guess what? You don't get to take any of that with you. But also, don't waste your singleness agonizing over the desire for a spouse, wasting the the liberty and freedom you have in singleness, agonizing over a spouse. A good godly desire for a spouse is wonderful, but there is a sense in which you can agonize over it to the point that you don't serve the Lord because... You've made, you've made an idol out of a spouse. And guess what? You don't get to take your spouse with you either. Because in heaven there is no marriage nor giving in marriage. So marry someone who will prepare you for that world to come and who will help you lay up treasures in heaven. But what you do take with you is your service for Christ and the treasure stored up in heaven. What you do take with you are the gold, silver, and precious stones that you will have when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What you do take with you are the crowns that are placed upon your head that you will cast at Christ on that great day. So whether single or married, do all for the honor and glory and service of Jesus Christ. And now to help encourage you to do that, Paul will now give three additional considerations in verses 32 through verse 40. So... Really, this is heading number four, because this is part two of last week's message. The fourth consideration is the preeminent focus. The preeminent focus that you are to have. Paul says in verse 32, But I would have you without carefulness. Now, Paul is not encouraging you to live a reckless and haphazard life. He's not telling you, don't be careful about anything in the modern definition of carefulness, but rather... Carefulness denotes the idea of worry, stress, or anxiety. 
Paul says, I don't want you to be filled with worry. Several times in this passage, Paul reminds us why he's giving this counsel, lest we misunderstand his intention. So he tells us in verse 32 why he's giving us these considerations. He does it again in verse 35, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But Paul is not giving these considerations in singleness to bind you to a joyless, unfulfilled single life. He's not trying to build up singleness and sell it as this thing that's so much superior to marriage that you should avoid marriage. No, he's giving you this counsel because he wants you to serve the Lord without worry. He wants you to serve the Lord without anxiety, without distraction. Well, what does your marital status have to do with the amount of worry in your life? And all of the married people are now chuckling. What does your marital status have to do with the amount of worry in your life? Well, Paul tells us in verse 32, he says, He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. When you are single, you are able to serve the Lord without the added responsibilities that come with a family. You are able to invest a larger portion of your time and energy to the Lord's work. You are able to give yourself over to scripture reading and prayer and church attendance and evangelism and witnessing. You are able to travel. You are able to attend conferences. You are able to fellowship more with other believers. You are able to support mission work. Most single Christians, or most of the Christians that go on short-term mission works, oftentimes are young single Christians. Why is that? Because they can do it with greater liberty. You are able to delegate your finances and be a gracious giver. Because you don't have the financial burdens of a married person. You don't have the added obligations of taking care of a family. And let me just say, not only are you able to do these things, but you ought to be doing these things as a single Christian. Don't wait until you get married to serve God or you probably never will. If you don't faithfully attend church in singleness, when your schedule is as free as it will ever get, do you think you'll be a faithful church member? You're married and have to juggle church with baseball games and piano recitals and doctor's appointments? If you don't learn to be a gracious financial giver in singleness, just imagine the excuses you will use to rob God when you're married. This is what Paul means by serving the Lord without carefulness. In singleness, you are able to give yourself over to God with minimal distractions and hindrance. If you see of a conference a couple of hours away and you want to attend, you don't have to call home and say, Honey, do we have anything planned this weekend? Or do I have the ability to go? If the Lord impresses upon your heart to give a generous gift to the church or to someone in need, you don't have to consider, well, what big expenses do I have coming up at home? Do I have to pay a medical bill for a child? Or do I have to put new, a new roof on the house? Those kinds of worries are not yet in your life, typically. So Paul says, he that is... He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. That is his preeminent focus. But in verse 33, But he that is married careth for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Paul draws a contrast between the single man and the married man. 
The single man has greater liberty and freedom to serve the Lord and doesn't have to take into consideration the responsibilities and obligations of the married man. Now some take this passage as Paul saying, I want you to be free from worry, so avoid marriage at all cost. But we know that's not what Paul's intention is. It's not perpetual singleness, but undistracted service that God desires of us. Can you wholeheartedly serve the Lord in marriage? Absolutely, you can. There are aspects of singleness that make service easier on a practical level. And all Paul wants you to do is consider those practical advantages. That's what chapter 7 is all about. Now when he says that the, the man that is married careth for the things that are of the world, he does not refer to worldly things in a carnal or sinful context. Oftentimes we talk about worldly people or worldly desires and we're talking about sinful, sensual desires. That's not what he's, what he's talking about. The idea here is earthly things. The mundane things, the mundane aspects of necessary life. They're not sinful uh, they're, they're indifferent. They're just physical necessities that we as human beings have to take care of. And a married man, more so than a single man, has to think about those things. Once you get married, there is not a single decision that you will ever make ever again that you do not have to take your family into consideration when making. Buying a vehicle. Buying dinner. Making a trip. Finding a church, how to spend your free time, you have to take your family into consideration when you make these decisions. So he's not talking about worldly, sinful things. He's talking about earthly things, mundane but necessary aspects of life. This is further explained by the phrase when he says, how he may please his wife. And this isn't a a superficial pleasing. It's not talking about... Well, the married man can't serve the Lord with with wholeheartedness because he has to always think about how he's going to keep his wife happy. Uh, Well, by the way, gentlemen, you're not going to do that anyways. Uh, But the idea, rather, is how he may take care of her. The Bible says how he may please his wife, how he may take care of her. And that extends to children as well. When you're single, your needs are very minimal. You don't need much money. You don't need many possessions. Your living expenses are very low. But you add a wife into the mix. And then you add some children into the mix. And now you have to think about how you're going to provide for this family that God has given you. Where are the two of you going to live? How are you going to pay the bills? How are you going to plan for major expenses? Now obviously the Corinthians were not worried about buying a family minivan in the first century. But these were the types of earthly cares that Paul has in mind here in this text. This is extremely practical. This is not a big flashy message today. A lot of esoteric logic and rhetoric and big words and so on and so forth. It's very plain. It's real life for real people, as we've said before about this chapter. And now you could go the worldly route, and you you get married, but you continue to live as singles. Right? You work a full-time job, she works a full-time job, you bank separately, you handle finances separately, you divide up the bills like roommates, and when you have children, you farm them out to daycare so both of you can continue working. That certainly seems to be the popular option in our society today. Let me say this, nowhere in the Bible are wives prohibited from having jobs. 
fact, women are commended, Proverbs 31, for being studious, for helping the, the family. But whether she works or not, it is the husband that God will hold accountable for providing for the physical needs of his home. And young men, as you consider singleness, and even husbands, as you consider your marriage, you need to remember that. You need to remember that. God holds you accountable for the immediate responsibilities that you have. But God ultimately also holds you accountable even for the responsibilities that your wife has. And I know that it is a challenge, and it's becoming increasingly so in our economical state to build a family on a single income. And there are sacrifices that you will have to make. There are material possessions that you will not be able to have like all of the other American dream families out there. But some of the best godly counsel a single young man or a husband can follow before he gets married is this. Do not make financial decisions that require your wife to work. That require her to work. Because if you start out that way, it'll be a whole lot easier to keep it that way rather than... You don't start out that way and you build a home that requires two full-time incomes and then trying to reassess your family to to get to a more biblical uh, perspective of of parenting and so on and so forth. It's very difficult to work backwards. Now, if she works to bring in extra income to save for the future, to make major expenses, whatever the case may be, praise God for that blessing. The Proverbs 31 woman We know that she didn't go to work every day and punch a time clock, but she did various things to be very studious. A lot of it was working from home and selling things that she had made, and it it was a blessing to her husband that she did that. But men, I, I would just urge you, do not put your family in a situation where you are dependent on your wife's income just to make ends meet. Because you will put your family in bondage. Your children will be the ones who will suffer the most. You will not be able to have the kind of undistracted service to God that this passage urges. Now, why go down this rabbit trail? Why even mention this? Well, because this is just one of the many, many cares of this world that come with marriage and family. It's very practical. And when you're single, you don't really think about these things. You don't really think about them. Uh, Most single young people that have been on their parents' insurance their whole lives and they find a girlfriend or they find a a boyfriend and they think, ooh, let's get married, that'll be great. They don't stop to consider, how are we going to pay for health care? Very practical things like that. So that's kind of what Paul's wanting us to think about here. And God knows that we don't think about these things, and that's why he's inspired the Apostle Paul to write 1 Corinthians and force us to think about these things. So we've talked about the men, but what about the ladies? Are there worldly cares that you should consider before entering into marriage? Well, notice what the Bible says in verse 34. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The Greek here literally reads, divided the wife and the virgin. They're divided. They're different. They're separate. They're two different people in a sense. There's a division of interests. There's a division of time. There's a division of availability. And this isn't a bad thing. Just as God commands husbands to provide for their families, so are wives commanded to be helpmeets and to serve alongside their husbands. 
know, really what's so remarkable about this passage, and we see it all throughout 1 Corinthians. Um, of course, we know that the, the, the liberal agenda wants to tell you that Christianity is, is backwards and, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's unequal, but there is a great equality between the genders presented in 1 Corinthians 7. Very great equality. An equality that would have been radical in that context of that day. Well, the, the, the virgin, the unmarried woman, verse 34, careth for the things of the Lord. Same phrase as the unmarried man. See the equality. That she may be holy both in body and in spirit. Paul repeats himself here, but he words the latter half of the statement a bit differently. Being holy in both body and spirit, being holy here does not mean being morally pure, as if, well, while you're single, ladies, you can be, you can be much more righteous and Christ-like, but then when you get married, you don't have to be anymore. No, the word holy, literal definition of holiness is what? To be set apart. That's what Paul is talking about. When you are single, you are wholly set apart unto Christ. You don't have a, a husband in your life. You don't have children in your life that, that give you earthly obligations. And why are you so set apart in your singleness? Same phrase, that you may please the Lord. On a very practical level, it is easier to be consecrated wholly unto God and His will for your life before you have a husband and children to care for. And Paul goes on, same parallelism, verse 34, where he says, but she that is married, again, it's identical wording, Paul is driving home the same point, but she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And again, it's not talking about, you know, well, the wife's job is just to constantly think about how she can make her husband happy. That's not what, uh, what Paul is saying. It's, it's that the husband has to care for his wife and the wife has to care for her husband. There's a mutual uh, compatibility. There's a mutual responsibility here. Marriage is not, well, the husband puts in 50% and the wife puts in 50% and then they come together and they make up 100%. No, it's the husband puts in 100%, the wife puts in 100%. And that is what a successful marriage requires. Just like his job and his responsibilities introduce challenges to his spiritual walk, the same principle applies to you ladies. Do you think nursing a baby every two hours cuts into your prayer time? Absolutely it does. The same way 40 hours a week at the office cuts into his Bible reading time. So yes, the, these worldly cares are challenges, but hear me very clearly, they are not excuses. That's, that's why these considerations in singleness are truly advantages. Because yeah, they're challenges, but they're not excuses. Should men still please the Lord after they get married? Should women still be holy, both in body and spirit, after they get married? Of course. God doesn't say, well, now that you're married, it's okay to become unfaithful. Now that you're married, it's fine if you haven't cracked your Bible in two weeks. It's fine if you haven't prayed in days. It's fine if you have not given liberally and graciously. That's why these considerations in singleness are true advantages because though service to the Lord becomes more of a challenge, God's standard does not change. 
So you need to consider that before getting married. You must consider your singleness and your spirituality and the new layer of responsibility that will be incumbent upon you when you enter into marriage. If you struggle to read your Bible now and go to church now, then you're not ready to assume even more challenges in your Christian life. And as you look for a spouse, you need to marry someone who is already faithfully serving the Lord in their singleness. Ladies, if he's lazy now, marriage is not suddenly going to make him a studious servant. If he doesn't read his Bible and maintain personal devotions now, he's definitely not going to lead you in family devotions when you marry him. And men, if her mind is consumed with carnal things, marrying her will not suddenly cause her to be heavenly minded. If she keeps up with the Kardashians more than she keeps up with the prayer closet, marrying her is not going to change that. So Paul is urging here, undivided, undistracted, focus upon the Lord. And if you don't have that in your singleness, while it's easier, then you won't have it in marriage with all of the responsibilities that that brings. Much more could be said about this. We could could go on and on. A whole sermon could be made just out of these three verses, but let us hasten on to finish this text. That's the preeminent focus. Make sure in singleness, that your preeminent focus is upon Christ. And if it is, it will remain that way once you're married. But if it's not, it will not suddenly become that way when you are. Now I want you to see the parental oversight. The parental oversight in verse 30, uh, 36. Stop by verse 35, because we see here where, where Paul once again explains himself. He says, "In this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you. Right? He, Paul is not giving us these things. He's not trying to beat you up and make you, and make you feel guilty and, uh, and, and discourage you and scare you away from marriage. That's not why he's doing this, to put a snare upon you, but, but for that which is comely, that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. In singleness and marriage, that you may attend upon the Lord without distraction. And then, verse 36, he discusses the parental oversight. The Bible says, If any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin. This is yet another section in 1 Corinthians that comes with great interpretive difficulty. There are primarily two ways of understanding verses 36 through 38. Uh, In fact, it might be the most difficult passage that we've come to yet in 1 Corinthians 7. In your view of these three verses, verses 36 through 38, will depend on how you identify the man and his virgin, right? It says, but if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin. Okay, well, what are the two, two views? Well, one of them is viewing the any man as a father and his virgin as his single daughter. And if you view that that way, then you will interpret these verses as Paul giving counsel concerning parental oversight in marriage. But the other popular view is to view any man as a single man and his virgin as the single woman that he's engaged to. And if you hold to that particular interpretation, then you will view these verses as counsel for a betrothed couple. Two very different things. Uh, And regardless of which view you take, there will be some tough questions to answer. 
For instance, if this is indeed about a father and his daughter, then I admit that the shift in audience does seem a bit odd because he's talking to virgins, he's talking to singles, talking to virgins, talking to singles, and then all of a sudden he says, and now to you fathers. So we might think, well, where are you going with this, Paul? And then another challenge would be in verse 36 where he says, let them marry. Well, obviously Paul would not counsel a father to marry his virgin daughter. So there's difficulties to that view, but... There are also difficulties to the other view. If you believe that this is talking about a single man and his betrothed virgin, then why didn't Paul use the word that identifies a betrothed woman in verse 36? Instead, he chooses to use the same word that is used for virgin in verse 25. So it seems to me that he's not talking suddenly about a betrothed woman, but he's still talking about a virgin, the same context that he's had throughout the entirety of this section. Also, uh, the view of a, bet- a betrothed couple would obscure the language in verse 38, which speaks of being given in marriage. Well, uh, a fiancé doesn't give his fiancé in marriage to himself. He receives her in marriage. So it goes without saying that this is not an easy passage to interpret. Uh, and, and much more could be said about the technical aspects of these verses. Uh, but for the sake of our study, I'm going to take the parental oversight view of this text mainly because I find the difficulties of that position to be easier to get around than the difficulties for the other position. So let's see if we can make sense of verses 36 through 38. Verse 36, But if any man thinks that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, you must understand that in Paul's day, marriage did not look like it does now. Okay, Uh, It was a family affair, It was a family agreement, and oftentimes it was practically arranged. Paul has spent the last ten verses presenting all of these considerations to singleness and the advantages that singleness has, and I believe he includes verses 36 through 38, lest any father in the Corinthian church come away with the idea that he was to prohibit his daughter from marrying. Say a father was reading about all these advantages to singleness, and then he looked at his single daughter and he said, Honey... Look at all that you can do serving the Lord as single. I'm not going to let you get married anytime soon. It's a plausible circumstance. And we we see that in the church today, don't we? For for multiple reasons. Fathers that, that want to prolong the period of their children's singleness for whatever reason. And so Paul includes this this text. Let's break it down. He says, if any man if any father thinks that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin. Well, what does it mean to, for a father to behave himself uncomely toward his single daughter? Well, by keeping her from marriage later into life, he would expose her to shame and disgrace in the first century. Back then, marrying uh, was done at a much younger age than it is today. So a woman in her late 20s or in her early 30s that did not have a husband in the first century would have been almost a downcast in society. Like, what, 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 what's going on here? Why aren't you married? Well, my dad won't allow me to marry. See, that, that could bring some disgrace upon her. The reason for Paul's considerations in chapter 7 is not for fathers to disgrace their daughters. That's not why he's given us these considerations. Then he says, if she passed the flower of her age. The flower of her age is, of course, a translation. You don't find the word flower anywhere in the original, so we have to understand what the colloquial definition of that would be. And really what Paul is saying is if she's, she's passed 
the, the point of marrying age. She's well into marrying age. It would have been totally appropriate and totally fine for her to have been married years ago. So he's not talking about a young lady that's just now coming of age to marry. He's talking about a, a woman who is single, still living at home, and has been that way for a while. And he says if, if she needs so require... Perhaps she has a strong desire to be married, or perhaps because of social circumstances, she is at a disadvantage still being single. A single woman in those days would have had a much harder time caring for herself than a single woman today. It was not as easy for a single woman in the first century to go out and get a job and find a place to live and care for herself. It was the custom that as long as she was single, she remained at home where her father could take care of her, no matter how old she was. But perhaps her parents are getting to a point in which they can no longer care for her for whatever reason. It may be that marriage was required for her well-being. So Paul says, if this is the case, let him do what he will. He sinneth not, let them marry. Even though Paul has given all of these considerations in singleness, a father is not sinning if he allows his virgin daughter to marry. Because again, this whole passage is pastoral counsel, not blanket commands. Then he says in verse 36, or verse 37, excuse me, nevertheless, so a different situation, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, this is a father that has thought about it, prayed about it, considered it, molded over, and has come to the conclusion that he does not think that it would be wise or expedient for his daughter to marry. So it's not arbitrary. He's not just exercising his parental authority and beating his chest for no reason. He has good godly reasons for prohibiting this marriage. Having no necessity, so there's no external pressure for his daughter to get married. Perhaps she doesn't really desire a husband. Perhaps he's able to take care of her, so there's no need for her to get married for her well-being. There's nothing that would make a marriage necessary in this situation. And he hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin. So it's not some fallacious or, or flippant choice that he's made. It's a choice that this man makes based on what will most glorify God and allow his family to best serve God. Paul says that man reserves the right, he doeth well, to not give his daughter in marriage. Just like the father who allowed his daughter to marry did not sin, neither does the one who keeps his daughter from marriage. Well, this is definitely an odd text for us, and it's a hard text for us to apply in a post-Christian America in which marriage is no longer viewed as a family affair, in which uh, it's considered archaic for fathers to have any say-so in their children's marriages, and in which many first-generation young people, first-generation Christians who are young people, do not have godly parents to help them in these matters. But yet we still must uh, understand that this is something God has included in His Word and apply it to the best that we can. I would say if you are in that situation, if you are a young person who does not have godly parents, uh, you should still seek out godly, wise counsel regarding your singleness and regarding your marriage. And if godly people in your church or if your pastor uh, or if, if people that you can look to for wisdom and counsel, if they say, you know, really, I don't think entering into marriage is the most wise thing for you to do right now, you would probably do well to listen to that counsel but if you have consulted with such people and they seem to be thinking that this would be God's will and, and, and you seem to have the general consensus of the church and Christian wisdom, then it's safe to enter into that marriage. Verse 38, 
Paul says, so then he that giveth her in marriage doeth well, but he that giveth her not in marriage doeth better. Again, that's not a question of bad or good. It's not saying that the virgin who doesn't marry is is not as spiritual as the one who marries, or the one who marries is not as spiritual as the one who doesn't marry. It's a question of expediency. It's a question of expediency. Entering into marriage introduces additional practical challenges to serving the Lord. Therefore, fathers are to consider if their single children are ready for these challenges before giving them to be married. Fathers should be preparing their children for marriage as they are coming of age. And then the sixth and final consideration comes to us in verse 39, and then, thank God, we're done with 1 Corinthians 7. He says, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. The sixth consideration for your singleness, and as you think about marriage, is the permanent bond. The permanent bond. Paul concludes his list of six considerations with a very weighty truth. Those considering marriage should consider that marriage is a permanent bond. The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. If you enter into marriage and then realize that you weren't ready, well, you realize that a little too late. You don't have the option of returning to your singleness. Your time of preparation is over. When you enter into marriage, you enter into a permanent bond that God has joined together. And you vow to your spouse before God that you will love them till death does you part. Divorce is not an option. Annulment is not really an option in this case. Oh well, we should have really waited. Let's go back and be single for another six months and sit through that pastoral uh, premarital counseling that we rejected because we were in such a rush to get married. That's not an option. Once you have said, I do, you better do. The permanency of marriage ought not to scare you away from it in this age of fear from commitment, but it should cause you to do the best you can at preparing for it. Do the best you can at preparing for it. Think about all the things that we prepare for in life. Athletes prepare very vigorously for their sports competitions. They train, and they train, and they study, and they study. Students prepare for their schooling. They read books. They go to lectures. But yet, those who are single and who are considering marriage oftentimes do very little to prepare for marriage. You ever read a book on marriage as a single Christian? Have you ever studied out what the Bible says about marriage as a single Christian? Something you need to be preparing for it. All marriages will have their challenges, but many problems in young marriages can be avoided by thorough and godly premarital preparation. Learn what the Bible says about marriage. Find older, godly married couples and spend time with them and pick their brains. I remember before Abigail and I got married, there were several older couples in our church that had been married 50, 55, 60 years. And before we got married, we asked them, can we take you out to lunch sometime? And I don't know if it was awkward for them. It wasn't awkward for me. I enjoyed it. But let's sit there with a notebook and ask questions. How, how, how have you had a godly marriage for 50 years? Marriage is the, the greatest commitment that you will ever make between another human being. And you would do well to equip yourself the best you can to uphold that commitment. 
So the wife is bound by the husband, and the husband is bound by the law to the wife so long as they live. And Paul includes this. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. What absolves a marriage? Death. As Vodibachum has once said, homicide maybe, divorce never. I want you to see also a revolutionary teaching of Paul here. Notice what he says. That this widow, this woman, who has lost her husband, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. She is now the head of her house. Uh, she is now her own head under God. And Paul places only one restriction upon her. Can she get remarried? Or can a man who's lost his wife get remarried? Yes, the Bible gives full permission for that. There's one crucial restriction. And really, it's not just a restriction on widows. It's a restriction on anyone thinking about marriage. Any person thinking about marriage. The Bible says they must marry only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. First and foremost, they must marry a fellow believer with whom they share practical and doctrinal agreement. But more specifically... They must marry according to God's will for their lives. They must marry someone that will encourage their sanctification, not hinder it. They must marry someone who will help them serve the Lord, not keep them from serving the Lord. They must marry someone that will point them to Christ and not the things of this world. To marry in the Lord is to marry in the will of the Lord. So as you consider your singleness and as you consider marriage, as you consider a future spouse, you must ask the question, is this person God's will for me? And you cannot always determine that based upon feelings. How pretty they are. How cute he is. How, how much you enjoy talking to him. Is he someone that will point you to Christ? Is she someone that will point you to Christ? And then Paul says, but she, talking about the widow, but she is happier if she so abide, if she remains single after my judgment or after my counsel. Paul is not prohibiting a widow from marriage, but he is urging her to think about these considerations in singleness. I think it's safe to say that Paul has in mind older widows here because in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 14, Paul explicitly tells younger widows to marry again. So again, this counsel depends on your place in life and the callings and gifts that God has given you, but what we must reckon with is the fact that this passage is not as simple as we would like it to be. It's just not. It's counsel and we must apply it to our lives where it's applicable. When we have fallen short of this counsel, we must repent and receive the grace to, uh, to, to go on where, from where we are. Where we haven't had the opportunity to apply this counsel, we must say, Lord, when my time comes, help me to remember the principles in your word. But we would all do well to take the pastoral counsel of the Apostle Paul and apply it right where we are because... These are not just the opinions of Paul. These are the words of God. And Paul says as much, I think also that I have the Spirit of God. To say that I think I have, is, it's a sophisticated and urbane way of saying I definitely have. Paul is not questioning if he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He knows he is. And there's even a hint of sarcasm here because, you know, the Corinthians, uh, they were a church that thought they had it all figured out. But here they are writing to Paul about marriage. And so Paul says, you know, I know you guys think that you have it all figured out, but I also have the Spirit of God. <laughs> we would do well to heed, heed wise biblical counsel. 
It's taken us six sermons to get through this lengthy and difficult chapter. And they certainly haven't been the most flashy sermons, but I do believe that the Lord has given us some very practical and applicable teachings on marriage and on family. But let me conclude with this. The Bible says in Psalm 127 in verse 1, Unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain who build it. Our only hope in this church is that God would build strong marriages. We cannot build them. God has to build them. That God would raise up godly men and godly women. That God would give wisdom to parents who raise children. Let us strive to order our homes, to order our marriages according to the principles of the Word of God. We will make many mistakes along the way. We will fail many times. But when we are not faithful, there is a God in heaven who is. Christ has redeemed us from every failing. He has redeemed us from all sin. And because we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have peaceful marriages that glorify Him. But if you are here today without Christ, then your singleness or your marriage is the least of your problems. If you are yet dead in trespasses and sins, then finding a spouse won't help you. Finding contentment in singleness won't help you. Before you think about your horizontal relationships upon this earth, you must consider your vertical relationship with God in heaven. Do you first and foremost belong to Him? Are you living a life in singleness or in marriage for His honor and His glory? If not, then I plead with you, stop wasting your life. Stop living for yourself. Cast down your pride, your selfishness, and flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the grace extended to sinners who come to Him will not only redeem you from all sin, but it will permeate throughout every facet of your life. It will make you a godly husband, and it will make you a godly wife, and it will make you a godly single. We don't just study marriage for the sake of marriage, but in all of Scripture, in all of our preaching, we do all things for the glory of Christ, to whom be honor, glory, and dominion forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank You. Jesus' name for your goodness to us, allowing us to come to the conclusion of this chapter. I pray that the practical exhortations here would apply, would, uh, would permeate our hearts and our thoughts as we consider your great word and all that you've done, given, and said to us. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. We ask your blessings upon the remainder of this day until we're able to meet again and worship you in spirit and in truth. May Christ go before us. For his honor and glory we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.